I wonder how many of you went to your medicine cabinets this morning as you got out of bed and felt uh, perhaps the impact of things that you were doing yesterday. Uh, I can tell you the, the grayer, your, grayer or the thinner your hair gets up top, uh, the more that becomes the reality of it. You run to your medicine cabinet to look for what medicine calls an analgesic Something that can help the aches and pains that you feel. How many of you went to your medicine cabinet this morning for an analgesic? Okay, just a handful of you. And there are probably a few that don't want to admit it, but they did. Um, And, you know, we live in a world where there's just all sorts of pain inflicting us. Uh, I mean, we could, we could make a list of the kinds of pain if we, if we just stayed in the realm of the physical. We could talk about all the various kinds of physical pain that we feel, but we know that's not the only kind of pain that there is. There's emotional pain, pain like shame, like addiction, like rejection, like grief and loss. These are deep and powerful pain and pains that humans feel. And experiencing those things in this world make us wish, I believe, for a spiritual analgesic. For something that God would provide for us that we could absorb and that it would lessen or shrink our pain. Would you be interested in that if there was such a thing? I take it that you would. Well, I believe that the passage we're going to look at today has been given by God to us for that specific purpose. And if you've got your Bibles or uh, digital instrument, that you will turn to Romans chapter 8, famous portion of Scripture. Some of you, probably it's your favorite portion of Scripture. And Romans 8 is a great chapter. It starts with the fact that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends with the statement that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it starts with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. And that just those two statements alone make the chapter wonderful. But what we're going to look at is the middle verses of the chapter. And as great as these two profound statements are that open and close the chapter, I believe that like a wonderful sandwich, the meat is in the middle. Let me read you the passage that we're going to look at today. It's found in Romans chapter 8. Beginning at verse 18. I'm reading from the ESV. So if you've got to find that on your digital device, you can do so. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Before we look at this word together, let's just take our hearts once more before the throne of God and just open our hearts to what he has to say to us. Pray with me. Lord, we come before you now once more just knowing that uh, we wade in as fleshly beings into something that is so spiritual and powerful that we just need the Spirit's help to be able to hear it, absorb it, embrace it, and live in the light of it. Those four things, Lord, we know that your Spirit has been given to us to enable us to uh be able to do. And so we just yield ourselves to him. We pray, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Do that, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, starting with no condemnation and ending with no separation, we come to this middle part that I just read, and I don't know whether your experience was like mine when I first read it, but I think, what on earth is the apostle talking about? I mean, I get the the kind of introductory statement and what he, he kind of uh, has as his thesis statement, which is that, therefore, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's clear enough. Although that statement makes me kind of say, well, you know, that's a pretty profound thing because what it pictures is that Paul says, I put the stuff, the sufferings, all the pain... I put the sufferings of this present time on one side of the scales. And on the other side of the scales, I put the glory that is to be revealed to us. And I weigh them out. All the sufferings of this present time versus the glory that's to be revealed to us. And watch kind of what happens on those scales. And the impact is, boom, that the weight of the glory is so much greater than the weight of the sufferings. And we hear that, and that's good theory for us. But I think I need to know some proof of that. How do I know that that's true? And I think that's what this middle section of Romans 8 between no condemnation and no separation, is there to tell us. And for a church named Living Hope, this is a a picture of what Christian living hope is all about. Three proofs that the apostle offers to prove that the weight of what's coming is so much greater than the weight of whatever our pain might be. In fact, I believe that he's telling us that the consideration of the weight of this glory has an impact of making our suffering less significant. It shrinks our pain, a spiritual analgesic. 
So what are these three proofs? Well, the first one, I believe, they revolve around kind of his word weight, which isn't a word we tend to like too much. Uh, we don't usually like to wait for things, especially good things. Uh, but sometimes it is a part of life, and that's the nature of hope. It's in the future. We have to wait for it. But they, the three proofs revolve around the word wait, and we see it here in verse 19, the first proof that he gives us. He says, for the creation waits. It waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together uh, in the pains of childbirth until now. So, the first thing he tells us is that the creation is waiting. It's waiting eagerly, with eager anticipation, for this event where the glory is revealed. This glory that we are to receive. And the picture is, and it uses an interesting word here where he talks about the anticipation of the creation. It's a word in the original language that literally means to stretch the neck. And it's the picture of kids standing as a parade goes by and all of a sudden they hear the fire engine either ringing its bell or blowing its siren down the street and they stick their heads out and they are craning their neck to see that fire engine. That's the image of what the creation is doing with regard to the glory that is about to come. Um... I used to live in Toronto, Canada, and Toronto, big international city, cosmopolitan city. And so there was, it was a pretty common experience to be in that airport and be where the customs area is as people are exiting customs, having flown into the airport with a multicultural kind of uh, crowd of people waiting for the individuals that, uh, they has flown into the, you know, flown into Canada and now are about to exit the customs. And so these are people that maybe they haven't seen in a long time and they are all craning their necks, stretching their necks in anticipation, looking for that person that they care about, they love, that they haven't seen in so long. That's the picture of creation. Now, it's hard to image creation doing that. I mean, we see animals perhaps kind of stretching their necks. But the picture is, is that this is all of creation. So we've got rocks and mountains. We've got galaxies. We've got atoms. We've got, we've got every part of the things that have fallen out of God's fingertips that is somehow aware that there's an event coming that is so wondrous that they, all the pieces of creation, is doing this in anticipation of it. And there's a reason why it's looking so forward to it. Because when humans fell in the Garden of Eden, 
God subjected the creation to the curse. All the things that we received for having sinned. Because this was to be our creation that we were to rule over. And everything under our authority got subjected to the curse. So Paul enumerates what those pieces of the curse are. It was subjected to futility. So the idea that things are always tending toward chaos, toward disruption, toward destruction. And the way I like to picture that is if we were to lock up this room and go away for 75 years and come back after 75 years, no one has stepped foot in this room, it would not be neater and straighter than when we left it. Same thing with your yard. Leave it for six months. And it's not going to be neater and finer than when you left it. That's what happens in this world. Everything has been subjected to futility. And it's the second law of thermodynamics, if you know it, where things are tending toward chaos all the time. And that was God's doing, but it was a result of our sin. He subjected the creation to futility. The second thing we see is that the creation is groaning and suffering the pains of childbirth. And that was, again, a direct statement of what God did in the curse. That childbirth, which was, I believe, to be a painless uh, experience before the curse, became painful. The bearing of fruit became painful. And for uh, us laboring against the land, now it grows thorns and thistles for us. So that's the pain of work, but it's also the pain of bearing fruit. And God has subjected the creation to this, but the creation knows something that we often are ignorant of. And that's that there's an event coming where the glory of God is going to be revealed through the children of God. And they are going to be set free. And that's the third thing. There's going to be a freedom from slavery to corruption that they are going to be set free into. The creation, mountains, atoms, Galaxies. They all know this. We're the only ones in the universe that tend to be ignorant of it. The creation knows it and is stretching its neck. So Paul says, how do I know? How do I know that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us? The reason I know that is because the whole of creation is stretching its neck in anticipation of this event. Every piece of creation is aware of what is going to happen. Their freedom from vanity and futility, their freedom from slavery, their freedom from pain is all coming when the children of God Enter into their freedom. Well, that's just proof one. That's pretty neat, isn't it? Uh, you don't think that's neat? Is that pretty neat? Pretty neat. That's pretty neat. Second one is even neater. Paul says, verse 23, and not only this, Not only the creation, 
but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He uses a little phrase there that we're apt to pass over if we're, we're not kind of carefully looking at it and because we don't really know, it doesn't really relate or connect with us. And it's a little phrase, the first fruits of the Spirit. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown within ourselves. What are the, what is the first fruits of the Spirit? Well, the first fruits points us back to an Old Testament feast found in Deuteronomy 26, if you want to look at it. Deuteronomy 26 tells the story of something that is going to take place or that Israel had as a part of uh, their uh, feast kind of schedule where it was 49 days plus one day after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Israelites, an agrarian society, were to go home after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, usually early in the spring, and they would start their planting. And 49 days plus one day, they were to return with the first little sprigs of spring that would come up. They were to go out and to cut them and put them in a basket and they were to come and bring them before the altar as an offering of first fruits. Now, 49 days plus one day, 50 days. Anybody know what the other name of the Feast of the First Fruits is? No. Pentecost. Pentecost. So that has some significance to the Christian church about when the Spirit came and fell on his people. That was the Feast of Pentecost. And so God chose that particular feast to symbolize something. But you got to think about what it was a feast of. So the Israelites going out early in the spring, and I don't know how many of you have gardens, but if you do, when it's one of the things that I used to love as someone who planted a garden I, in my, our first ministry. We had a uh, a parsonage that had a field in the back where there was a septic tank. It the soil was wonderful. It was wonderful. It was a low area, and so it got it stayed nice and moist. And so I planted a garden, and I tell you, you know, I used to get the burpee catalog. I don't even know whether they still have that or not. The burpee catalog, and I would be reading through that thing all winter long, looking forward to being able to plant those plants. And then when you plant them, sometimes what the burpee catalog would instruct that you needed to do is that once the seeds came up, you need to thin them. Oh, that was hard. Because every one of those little plants, I thought, oh, that could, that would grow such wondrous tomatoes or carrots or lettuce or, and, and they're wanting me to pull it out. But God asked the Israelites to do that, to go out and cut some of the things that they planted, which was probably not an easy thing to do. Put it in a basket, bring it and make it as an offering to God. And it was a unique kind of offering. It was a hope offering. They were offering these first little sprigs of spring in the hope of a great harvest. 
at the end of the growing season. Paul says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. So what does that mean? That means that when the Holy Spirit invaded our lives, when we were born again of the Spirit of God, that the Spirit brought with him certain ministries and gifts and things that he applied to us which enrich our lives. And all those things that he has brought to us and ministers to us, Paul calls the first little sprigs of spring. So let's just take a moment. Let me let you all kind of probe your theology here. What are some of the things that the Spirit has brought to us? What are things that he has now provided to us or provides to us that would be in this category of first fruits? So just start naming some of the ministries and things that the, the Spirit gives to us. Somebody name one. Youth? Youth minister. Okay, you're talking about a specific minister. I'm talking about things that perhaps he, he does to us in our inner lives. I'm sorry? That's right. So the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, that's one aspect. What else? He, he convicts us, that's right, of sin, righteousness, and judgment. What else? Reconciliation, he's often the facilitator of reconciliation. What else? Fellowship with the Father, he guides us into truth. He uh, facilitates our entry into the Father's presence. What else? Peace, that's right. He, he provides peace for us. I'm sorry? Worship, that's right. We worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, so we have that. What else? That's right. So we got not just that, but the gifts of the Spirit, all the gifts of the Spirit, these rich things that he has brought to us. He seals us for the day of redemption. Uh, we've got uh, a guiding that he provides for us. There are There's ministry after ministry, all of which we depend on as believers. He teaches us. So the Lord, the Spirit, is doing this for us. And Paul says, as vast as these things are, they're the first little cuttings of a great harvest of the Spirit that we have yet to experience. As marvelous and as vast as these things are, we are to understand that they are just the first fruits. That in a very short time, the sufferings of this present age are, is going to encounter the hope that is to be revealed to us, the glory that is to be revealed to us. And all this stuff that we think right now is so hard will experience how insignificant it really is compared to what he's got for us. So we've encountered two proofs. The creation is stretching its neck in anticipation of this glory that is coming. What we have received from the Holy Spirit is only the first little sprigs of spring of a great harvest of the Spirit that we're going to experience when this glory comes.
But there's a third proof that I think is the most powerful of all. Paul says, For in hope, this is verse 24, For in hope, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That's a little confusing. Hope for what he sees. Sees if we see it, it's not hope. It's you know. So, so what's the idea here? In hope we have been saved. In other words, all that we have received. Was he said this of the Spirit? He now says it with regard to our salvation. Of all the things that salvation has brought to us. That as vast as that is. And of all the changes that has wrought in our lives. And all the differences it has made. Since God in that moment of time by his grace and his love redeemed us. All that has been wrought in our lives through that salvation. Folks, we haven't seen what that salvation has really purchased for us yet. It lies in the realm of hope. And one day, I believe very soon, we will actually have our eyes see what now lies in the realm of hope. And the impact is going to be so great, so vast, so wondrous, that Paul says, as I put the weight of the sufferings of this present time and next to it, the scale of the glory that is going to be revealed to us, there is no comparison between the two. No comparison. That our salvation lies. We've received only the smallest piece of what will one day be ours. Remember hearing the story of, and some of us will be able to identify with this, uh, 10-year-old boy who was riding his sister's hand-me-down bike around the neighborhood, which really was cramping his style. And he decided, this is probably June, July of the year, that he knew that his parents, who were not well-to-do, could not probably afford a bike, but if if he told them about it, maybe they could save up enough to get him one for Christmas. So he found this back when there was a Sear, such a thing as a Sears catalog. You remember those? Uh, he found the mountain bike that he wanted, really a classy bike. He tore out the page from the Sears catalog. He brought it to his mom and dad one morning. And he said, I've decided what I want for Christmas. And they said, Christmas? It's July. What are you talking about Christmas? He says, I know. He says, but I also know that you need time to kind of make this happen. So I'm giving you time, but I'm also going to tell you what I'm going to do. I am promising that if I get a bike for Christmas, I am going to keep my room straight between now and Christmas. I am going to carry out the trash every week. I am going to 
do whatever you guys want me to do and ask me to do that might have caused a fight. I won't fight you. I will do it if you give me this bicycle. And they looked at the bike and they looked at the cost and they said, sweetheart. He says, look, he says, let me tell you this. He says, you don't have to get me underwear. You don't have to get me pajamas. You don't have to buy me any games. You don't have to, no socks. All I want is this bicycle. Uh, well, we'll see. Well, he says, I'm going to work toward that end. So he kind of kept this in front of them. Uh, he was very creative about it. One night his mom went to bed and, you know, kind of reached her head on, hand under her pillow and felt this piece of paper and pulled it out, turned on the light, and it was the, you know, Sears catalog page with the bike on it. One day the, his, his dad came down to eat his morning cereal and there on his placemat with the bowl on it is this picture of this bicycle. So he kind of kept it in front of them until finally Christmas morning comes. And this kid is so excited. could barely sleep the night before. But he gets up early and of course he has to wait till the rest of the family comes down and, and you know, that's agonizing. But then they begin to open their gifts. The family finally arrives and they start to open their gifts and he gets a box and he opens it in his underwear. And he gets a box and he opens it in his socks and he opens another box and it's a game and he opens another box and it's PJs. And pretty soon all the boxes are disappearing from underneath the tree. And finally, they're all gone. And he is not happy. And, you know, we have ways of expressing ourselves when we're not happy without it necessarily being verbal. He's, you know, they're, they're starting to clean up now. And so he's throwing things into their boxes and, you know, just kind of stomping around and moping and letting it know. And, and, and finally, his dad says, whoa, 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 wait a second here. You know, you've received a lot of nice gifts this Christmas. And the kid can't stand it. He just explodes. He says, you know, you know there was nothing I wanted more than that bicycle. And I cleaned up my room for six months to get that thing. And, you know, it's all I wanted. You didn't have to give me the stupid socks and the stupid underwear. And Dad said, well, wait a second here. And he reached back behind the tree, and between two branches, he pulls out a little box and says, well, there's one last gift here. Here's a gift for you. And he goes, well, 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 what is this? And Dad says, open it and see. And so he opens the box, and he pulls out a nut and a bolt. And he says, well, what, what's this? And Dad says, that's your bicycle. That's not funny, he says. That's not funny at all. And Dad says, well, if you wait just a second and take it out in the garage, you'll find that those are the last two pieces for your bicycle that's waiting for you.
If I understand what Paul is saying here, this is what we've received of salvation. This is all we've received to this point. All the wondrous things that salvation has done for us. All the wondrous, amazing, incredible transformations that it has brought. The change and transformation of our hearts, of our minds. The security of knowing that Christ has paid for all of our sins without any merit of our own. And all that that has done for us is just this. Compared to what salvation has really purchased for us. We haven't seen it yet. We haven't seen it yet, but it's so great. Paul says, I just put this in the scales next to all the pain that I'm going through right now or all the pain I could be going through. And there's no comparison. The weight of this glory shrinks my pain. So I don't know what kind of pain you got going on in your life. But here in the middle of Romans chapter 8, in a passage that often gets passed over in the light of all the good stuff that we can kind of understand easily in Romans 8, I believe this middle section, for a church named Living Hope especially, is a really important one. Because all the things that the church may have gone through, all of its struggles, all of its difficulties, compared with what God has in the future for all of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus, is so great, it shrinks the significance of the pain. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Creation stretching its neck in anticipation of this event. The first fruit of the Spirit compared to what is going to be a great harvest. And then it's salvation that lies in the realm of hope that we haven't seen yet. Thank you, Lord, for what your word teaches us to wait for. Let's bow together for prayer. Lord, you know we are not big on discomfort. We grumble and we gripe and we complain and we whine. Because of the struggles we may be going through. And some of them may be significant and hard. But the future that you have ensured for us is so wondrous. Help lift our eyes to see and know and understand what the creation already has clear in its sight. Help us learn to look forward to that in such a way that it shrinks our pain. Thank you for just the power of such a living hope. In Jesus' name, amen.